they're sort of fuming over the command. They don't want to do it, but they recognize that you're bigger than them. And so they say, you know what? Fine. I recognize that you're in, in power here. And so I'm going to do this thing. But I just want you to know I don't like it. You see that? And they don't even have to say it. It's all on their face. All right? Kids are like that. They recognize that you have them in a position where you can exert your will over them. And so they know they're stuck, but they're not going to do it joyful. There's no joyful submission or gladness, no desire for obedience. It's just, well, the alternative is I get whooped or I get put in timeout or I get grounded or whatever it is. So, okay, fine. You've got me this time, but one day I won't have to do it. That's sort of the attitude of children oftentimes. And in our text here in Exodus chapter 8, what we find is that Pharaoh is actually a lot like children in that sense. Uh, the plagues continue, and he's beginning to realize and acknowledge a little bit that this Yahweh person, who you remember back from the first time Moses went, he said, you know, who's this Yahweh guy? This Yahweh character actually has some power. He's, he's beginning to acknowledge that, but he's still unwilling to submit to God's position as a Lord of creation. So it's, it's okay, fine, Yahweh, you've got some power, I'll give up a little bit, but you're not over me. I'm still in charge here. So it's an acknowledging of a power, but it's still that root issue is I'm not yielding to, I'm not submitting to God's position. We're going to see that in our text. Last week, we saw the first plague uh, that was turning the Nile waters into blood. And this week, things speed up, at least from a preaching perspective, because we're doing the whole chapter. We get three plagues. And what I want to try to do is to highlight for us three elements of the narrative that continue from previous chapters. Uh, three things that we're seeing in the text here that, that come up over and over again and uh, really show us, I think, but by being highlighted in the text, I think they're showing us what the writer intends us to really focus on. So I'm going to show you these three features. One is the continued supremacy of God's power over everyone else. Secondly is the continued protection of God's people. And then thirdly, the continued denial of God's position. So our main idea, what I hope to show you in the text today, is simply this. As a result of more plagues, Pharaoh begins to acknowledge Yahweh's power, but he still refuses to submit to Yahweh's authority or Yahweh's position. Okay, So he's beginning to, it sounds on the surface like he's beginning to yield a little bit, but what we'll see is actually at the root, in the heart, he's still as hard-hearted and obstinate as ever. So stand with me. I want to read for us Exodus chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1, read the whole chapter. Uh, beginning in verse 1, Exodus chapter 8, if you're there, say word. Excellent. All right, so beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Verse 8, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people 
and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs and he had, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But note this verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this, sh this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we yield at this moment to uh, the authority and inspired perfection of your word. We pray that in this moment we would not be hard-hearted like Pharaoh, but that we would be soft-hearted, receiving what you have for us in your word, the instruction, the reproof even, the rebuke. Soften us by your spirit to hear from you in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So a lot to cover. 
And so let's jump into it. First off this morning, I want us to show, or I want to show you the continued supremacy of God's power. This continued supremacy of God's power. Look again, this is verses, as an example, 16 through 18. And what we saw in the first plague with the Nile waters turning into blood was that God's power is actually greater than the power of the magicians or even the power of the so-called gods of Egypt. Remember that when the Nile turned to blood, Pharaoh's kind of like, ah, okay, great trick, brings in his magicians who also turn water into blood. But of course, as uh, Pastor West mentioned last week, the greater trick would have been to turn it back into water. But somehow they managed to turn it into blood. But they weren't the, the match for Yahweh. They could do sort of part of what Yahweh was doing, but they couldn't match what he was doing. And here in chapter 8, we have another round of these powerful signs, another round of these demonstrations, not only of judgment, but also of the power of God. We get frogs, we get gnats, and we get flies. Now imagine being an Egyptian at this time. Okay, imagine you, know, you wake up one day and instead of one frog, it's a million frogs. And instead of one fly and kind of buzzing here and there, it's millions of them. You wake up one day and suddenly you're in this terror where gnats and frogs or flies are everywhere. What would this say to you about this Yahweh person that you've heard about? And furthermore, what would it say to you about your gods who seem to be unable to help? These plagues put God's power on display. Yahweh is the creator. We've seen that he is able to make from nothing. See that in Genesis. We see it even still here. He's able to make from nothing, to multiply from nothing. He is the creator and he is the Lord of creation. Do you notice the two times in this chapter where the magicians appear? Let me point them out to you. Verse 7 and verse 18. Okay, verse 7 is the frogs. And the magicians come in, and they are, again, able to also make frogs come up out of the Nile. I don't know why you would have needed more frogs at this point, but nonetheless, they say, we can do that too. Look at these frogs that we can make, but they aren't able to send them back. And then look at verse 18. When the gnats come, they fail. Verse 18, the magicians tried by the secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Notice there's times where they seem to be able to do a little bit of what Yahweh does, and there's times where they can't. As we discussed with the first plague, and even with the, the throwing down of the snake staffs and the one eating them and things like that, the magicians are able to reproduce some of the things that Moses and Aaron do. And we talked about this in our, um, our Wednesday home group last week, talking about how Satan has power in the world. He has power to, to control some things, to work in our world. He has power. He empowers his people to do his bidding, I think namely, which is to oppose God and to oppose the people of God. But as we talked about in our home group, Satan's power is limited. And that's very important because we can, we can go too far and give Satan too much power or too much credit. The reality is, though he has power in this world, he is restrained. He is on a leash, so to speak. His power is limited. But you know whose power is not limited? Yahweh. Yeah, it's Yahweh. Not just the God of the Israelites, but actually he's the God of Crosspoint. He's the God of you and me. He's our God. His power is unlimited and unrivaled. Yahweh is the God of Isaiah 40, where he says that he's the one who sits above the circle of the earth 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's Yahweh. These magicians may be able to come in and do some parlor tricks, and you know, Satan is able to help them to do these things, but his power is limited. Furthermore, his time is limited. But it's Yahweh whose power is unlimited. It's Yahweh whose power is supreme. And in fact, Yahweh says through Aaron and Moses that the whole point of these signs, yet apart from judgment, is through these signs, Pharaoh, you're going to know that I'm the Lord. We saw that back in chapter 7, verse 17. Pharaoh, you're going to know through these signs that Yahweh is Lord. Not Pharaoh, not some Egyptian god, but Yahweh. And we even saw it here in chapter 8, verse 10. Through these signs, you're going to know that there is no one like our God. I wonder if you're here this morning, if you would, if you would agree to that, if you would say that. Would you say that you know that there is no one like our God? Uh, have you read the stories about God's power in the Bible and said, man, there's no one like Yahweh? Have you seen the power of God displayed in creation? More importantly, have you experienced God's power in your own life? Here in the beginning of Exodus chapter 8 with these different plagues, God's power is on display. And though Pharaoh tries to undo it, though the magicians try to undo it with all the things they're doing, Yahweh's power continues to be supreme. And that is great news. Because just think about in our world, where it seems like everything is falling apart. It seems like Satan has run amok. We may be tempted to think like, wow, has God just sort of checked out and we're on our own? No. Whatever power the enemy has right now, it is limited and Yahweh is supreme. Throughout these plagues, the three now and even four if you count the water, we're seeing this continued supremacy of God's power. But secondly, we see the continued protection of God's people. Look again back at verse 22 of chapter 8. This is in the flies plague, where God says, hey, I'm going to send the flies. But then in verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites lived. He says, uh, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Again, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of of the earth. From the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have seen God's protection of his people. Right? Think back to chapter 1. Right? Pharaoh looks around and he says, wow, there's just too many of these guys, so we're going to enslave them. Then we're going to go one step forward and we're going to kill all the babies. And so he, remember he tells the midwives, hey, if you see you know, a baby boy, chuck them in the river. But what happens? Well, the midwives say no. God through them is protecting his people. Then you go to chapter 2, Moses comes along, should have been chucked in the river, and yet his mom protects him through the power of God at work to rise up to be this great leader. And so from the beginning of the books of, of Exodus, despite the efforts of the different pharaohs here to kill or um, hinder and squash the people of God, they've actually done the opposite. They've multiplied, they're prospering here in the land of Egypt. And then we get to this fourth plague here, and we find this statement about protection. Okay, it's a statement of protection, but it may seem weird that we're only now reading it. Look again, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart, verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. 
Now, the natural question that I have when I get to a passage like this, or this one in particular, and you may have it too, is, is this the first time that Yahweh is protecting his people like this? Right? Because we're on the fourth plague. So what about plagues one through three? Is it just now with the fourth plague that Yahweh comes in and says, okay, now I'm going to set my people apart and protect them? Or is it that I've always been protecting them, though it's just now stated clearly in the fourth one? Well, I am of the opinion that the answer is yes to the second. That though this is the very first time it's stated explicitly in the text here, that actually it's implied in the previous plague. That in all of the plagues, God is actually protecting his people from experiencing what the Egyptians are going through. Simply put, God will not do to his people what he does to the Egyptians here, because judgment is for the wicked in this case. Now think with me about all the plagues. Think where we're going. We started with the blood and the water. We're going all the way to the tenth one. What's the last plague? Death of the firstborn, right? That's, that's sort of ramping up to the most um, significant, certainly the most destructive plague that is coming. And when that plague comes, God sets apart his people. I, I don't want to like spoil the story if you haven't read ahead, but remember he, he sends the angel of death. He says, put the blood on your doorpost and the angel's going to pass over you so you'll be set apart and, and saved. Well, here in Exodus chapter 8, we get the same sort of thing here where the people of God are set apart. In this case, not by blood or anything like that, but even by geography. Yahweh says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a division up where the flies, they go over on this side, but when they get to the street, they won't cross over into Goshen. Somehow these flies are going to know where to go and where not to go, which seems strange to me because flies don't know geography. And flies, furthermore, they don't know nationality. They don't know that, oh, that's an Israelite house. We can't go in there, right? Like you go into your house this week and you got a fly. Go tell it, hey, I'm an American. Get out of my house and see what happens. They don't care. I mean, I remember uh, when I was in high school, I was working summer job. I was doing um, detailing cars at a car dealership. And I experienced something that I'd never, to my knowledge, experienced before. And it was mayfly season. I don't know if there's a word for when they all just appear, but I go home at the end of the day, everything's fine. I come back, and there are millions of them everywhere. Everything is covered. Every car is covered. Every building, all the doors and windows are covered. Uh, the ground is covered with so many mayflies that they crunch when I would walk on them. It was, I was like, am I Pharaoh? What's happening here? Uh, and so we had to hose off the cars. We were, at, at one point, we're hosing them into a giant pile and we're literally taking shovels to scoop shovelfuls of mayflies and putting them into a dumpster. And it would be a little bit crazy if I said, you know what, hey, mayflies, you guys, this is really inconvenient on a car lot. Can you go to the field next door, do your thing over there, and then just sort of leave us alone? Well, that would be crazy, right? Because mayflies, they don't care where, where you are or what you're doing. They just sort of go everywhere. But somehow here in Exodus chapter 8, these flies know not to go to Goshen. How can that be? Well, it can only be by the sovereign command of God. Do you know that God often in the Bible talks about setting his people apart? All throughout the scripture, he talks about having his own people that aren't like everybody else, but they're 
they're pulled out. They're separated. It's the same story throughout the Bible. He talks about having a people who are special. There are people who are called by his name. Peter will say there are people, they're a chosen uh, possession for him. And not only are they his people, but he is their God. You remember when Yahweh comes to Moses and says, hey, let me, I'm going to let you know what I'm up to. I'm going to bring the people up out of Egypt. We're going to hightail it across the desert, and I'm going to give you this new land. And when you get there, I'm just going to say, peace out, and you're on your own. No. He says, when you get there, you'll be my people, and I will be your what? Your God. The people of God are special. They're called out by God. He, we are his people, and he is our God. And here in Exodus chapter 8, Yahweh, the holy, the righteous God, brought judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. God chose to punish their sin, but he chooses not to punish his people in the same way. He chooses to preserve them. And here we see these two characteristics of God at work here, which is, I think, very interesting from uh, the text. God is both wrathful toward sinners and gracious toward sinners. You see that in the scripture? God is both wrathful toward sinners and then also at times very gracious to sinners. For some people, God chooses to show his holiness and wrath by judging their sin, by punishing them. But for his own people, God chooses to show his grace and mercy by forgiving their sin. How can it be? How can God say to this group, I'm going to show my righteousness and holiness by judging you and punishing your sin? But to this group of equally wretched, terrible sinners, you know what? I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to forgive you. How can it do that? Only because someone else took the punishment of those people. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, that's the us of God's people, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans uh, 8, 1, one of my favorite verses, sort of the the climax of, of Romans here, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in whom? Christ Jesus. I want you to hear me on this church and Visitors, so glad you're here. If you're watching now or 20 years from now, there's no middle ground when it comes to our standing with God. Right? We don't like to think that, you know, when it comes to God, I'm uh, sure I'm sort of curious. I, I've gone to church. I'm kind of on the fence, and maybe I'll decide later. There's no middle ground when it comes to our standing with God. Uh, we are either wicked sinners under condemnation, or we are forgiven sinners rejoicing in the free gift of life and grace in Christ. Uh, We will either face judgment like the Egyptians, or we will be protected by judgment or from judgment by God, who has already judged our sin on the cross. There's no middle ground. There's no sort of like, look, I just I'm just kind of on my own here and I don't look, I don't I don't mess with God and so he doesn't mess with me and we're fine. No. There's none of that. We are either condemned or forgiven. We are either guilty or innocent. We are either his people or we are not. You notice in the text, there's no third category here. There's no third party. You're either his people or you're the Egyptians. 
You are either his people or you are not. If you are his people, he says, I'm preserving you. I'm protecting you from this judgment I'm bringing. If you are not his people here in Egypt, there is judgment and there is punishment for sin. Both groups are sinful. Look, the, the Israelites are no better than the Egyptians. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are no better than any lost person out there this morning. Amen? Okay. Not enough of you said amen. Amen? What's the difference? It's not us. It's what God has chosen to do to us and for us and through us. God has chosen to say today, like he did in Egypt, I will punish some and express my wrath and my holiness that way, which he is perfectly right to do. And with others, I'm going to display my holiness and my grace and my love by forgiving, though not just willy-nilly, because I've punished my own son in their place. And in both expressions, God is perfectly right, perfectly just, perfectly good. And we have the blessing this morning, not an earned blessing, not a luck blessing, but a God's choice blessing that he has chosen not to punish us, but to forgive us. And this morning, if you're here and you've not submitted yourself to the Lord, if you haven't confessed your sins, you've not forsaken your sins, you just sort of ride in the fence, or maybe you've sort of like, I'm going to dip my toe into Christianity a little bit, I'm going to kind of I'm going to do some of the things that seem okay, but I'm going to hold back. If that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you and and challenge you. Turn to Christ. Because if there's any lesson here from Exodus, it's that there is no middle ground. If you think you're in the middle ground, then you're actually still condemned. If you think, well, you know, I've thought about it and I'll figure it out later. I'm sowing my wild oats now and I'll get right later. Then you stand condemned. Paul says there's no condemnation but that's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. The attitude of it'll all work out in the end, that's not Bible. Paul says the only hope you have of standing before God and not being condemned is if it's Christ standing in front of you, in between you and the Father. So I wonder this morning if, if you are here and you would acknowledge that, yeah, I mean, I've, just, I've either been on the middle or I just flat out said no for years and years and years. I wonder if you would instead this morning turn from your sin. Would you find grace instead of judgment? Would you find life instead of death? It's available to you. It's completely free. Best thing you can have. But it requires a submission, which is often the hardest thing to do. It's available to you only in the shed blood of Christ poured out for you as he received your judgment, your punishment, your condemnation. And in him, what do you get? You get his forgiveness. You get his righteousness and you get his life. Here in Exodus, God says, I'm continuing to protect my people. I'm going to pull them out, set them apart. I'm going to judge the wicked. I'm going to keep these over here. And he will do this all throughout the scriptures. And he will do it in us as well. He continues to protect his people. We've seen already the continued supremacy of his power, the protection of his people. And thirdly, I want us to see the continued denial of God's position. Here's where we're circling back to Pharaoh here. The continued denial of his position. There are two times in this chapter, it's with the frogs and the flies, where Pharaoh, he seems like he's coming around. He, He seems like maybe he's beginning to have a change of heart. Because he tells Moses, Look, these plagues are too much, fine, you guys head out, right? Look at, again, verse 8. 
Then Pharaoh, this is after the frogs, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. Boy, that's a, we're a long ways off from, who's this Yahweh character from back in chapter 5? Now it's plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Later in verse 28, this is where the flies come in. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, almost, uh, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you know, someone else is going to plead for you? You're Pharaoh. Like, you don't, you don't ask somebody to plead for you. We're, we're, like I said, we're a long way from chapter 5. But is it really a change of heart? Is it really a change of heart? I say no. And the reason for that is because both times that Pharaoh says to Moses, hey, fine, you guys can go out of here, what does he then do? He goes back on his word. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Pharaoh says, look, okay, fine, things are bad. That, I give up. You guys can go worship. And then he goes back on his word. But do you catch what happens in the, in the interlude? What, there's something about the situation that changes, which causes Pharaoh then to change his mind. And what is it? Well, it's a, it's a respite, an old word for a, a break. There's a pause in the plagues here. So he says, look, things are terrible. You guys get out of here. Things get better. Things are wonderful. Stay where you are. You're not going anywhere. You know, discomfort is a great motivator. Parents, you probably figured this out with children. Discomfort is a great motivator. You know, it's like, look, this is the food that mama made, and we're going to eat it. Well, I don't want that. Okay, well, just go on about your day, and when you get hungry, it'll be here for you. They say, well, fine. You know. Well, they get hungry enough. They get uncomfortable enough. What happens? They're going to eat it. That's exactly right. But discomfort is a great motivator. And that's what we have here in the story with Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh's all high and mighty. I'm not giving in. I'm not doing anything until he gets uncomfortable enough. When things get uncomfortable, look verse 8 again. Pharaoh calls him and says, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice. It's too many frogs, Moses. Fine. Plead with Yahweh, get him to stop it, and you guys can go. He probably wasn't happy about it, but just fine. You guys can go. Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord, only you must not go very far away. Plead with me. So I am, I am at this point uncomfortable enough in my house, and my people are uncomfortable enough. And in these verses, we see that Pharaoh is at least beginning to acknowledge God's power. Right? Because he says, hey, look, Moses and Aaron, plead to Yahweh. So he is recognizing that it's Yahweh who's doing this, Yahweh who has the power to do this. He recognized that Yahweh, the, the same God he once dismissed, is actually the one in charge of the plagues. And he even asks Moses to plead his case. But as soon as the plagues go away, it's a 180, and he changes his mind. You remember from the text I mentioned it earlier, Yahweh says that by doing all of these signs, Pharaoh, you're going to know. You're going to know that I'm the Lord. 
there are some people here who are starting to get it. Look at verse 18. It's the magicians, these shady characters. What do they say? They tried in verse 18 by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. So there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So even the magicians are starting to say, Pharaoh, look, this is, this is clearly Yahweh. This is, this is beyond what we can do. Clearly, Yahweh has this power here. Pharaoh is smart enough to recognize it, uh, to recognize that Yahweh has power that even Pharaoh doesn't. And he's uncomfortable enough to swallow some pride, at least, and let the people go, right? But he still refuses to submit to God's position of authority. It's like the kid's story all over again, right? He says, look, Yahweh, clearly you have some power. Fine, I'll give in a little bit. You guys get out of here, go and do your worship thing, but I'm still Pharaoh, right? I'm not, there's no joyful submission here. This is not uh, Pharaoh having this great moment where he says, wow, I've been wrong this whole time. Yahweh, you are clearly right. I'm sorry. I I, want to help the the Israelites. I'm going to help them pack. I mean, we're going to like clear the road for them. Just take them. No, you don't see that. It's Moses, too many frogs, Call them, to call them off and get out and do your worship thing. And then what do you think would have happened after the worship thing? All right, you had your weekend, back to work. That's a far cry from this humble, submissive type of obedience. Pharaoh is only willing to recognize Yahweh's power, but he's not going to submit himself to Yahweh fully. All right, so it's, it's, it's sort of a, I'll, I want both. I'll, I'll acknowledge the power of Yahweh. Clearly you can do things that my magicians can't. But I'm still Pharaoh, right? I still have my position. Uh, So it's not a full giving in to the Lord. It's clinging to something from the past and saying, fine, you got some power, that's fine. But I'm not going to recognize your position as the Lord of creation. And I'm certainly not going to recognize your position as Lord of me. I'll do what it takes, fine. I'll yield a little bit so you guys can go out and worship. But just remember, I'm still Pharaoh. And I wonder this morning... If you and I are at all like Pharaoh in this story, the sort of approach that says, okay, fine, Yahweh, he's clearly got some power, this God's got some power, but that doesn't change me. I'm still me and I still do my thing. So, sort of, I'll, I'll acknowledge some power that he has, but I'm not going to acknowledge and yield to that position that he has of authority over me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're an unbeliever and you'd say, you know what, like I give to charity, um, I pray sometimes, I, I go through the motions, I mean, I'm here at church on a Sunday morning, but you don't submit fully to God. Maybe you give sort of the, the head nod, like, hey God, what's up? You remember that Jesus is my homeboy craze? Uh, don't even get me started. But it's just sort of that approach, like, yeah, me, me and the big guy upstairs, we're okay, we're good. But there's no submission there. There's no, no acknowledgement. There's no uh, knee bending to the creator of everything. You acknowledge the big man upstairs. Man, yeah, he's got some power. You know, he controls like hurricanes and stuff, but he doesn't control me. You want to pay lip service to God, but you don't want to worship God. You want to say what's required, but you don't want to actually have to do anything. On the, on the outside, sure, you acknowledge God's power and you say the right stuff, but in your heart, you, you refuse. You're hard-hearted. You may 
You may sit and bow on the outside, but in the, on the inside, you're standing right up and shaking a fist at God. Jesus would say, you're, you acknowledge me with your lips, but your hearts are what? You're far from me. Maybe that's you this morning and you're like Pharaoh. Sure, I'll go through the motions. I'll acknowledge, yeah, God's got some power. Not over me. Nope, I'm still me. Well, maybe you're this morning and you're a genuine believer. You have been saved, but you have those Pharaoh moments where you know God, you know you've been changed by him, but there's that area of your life where you say, that's still mine. God, yes, you are Lord. Yes, I will follow you, except for that area. And sometimes we say, like, oh, it's a sin area you need to get over. It might be. But it might also just be like, you know what, God, I'll follow you. I'll submit as long as my family life doesn't change, as long as my work situation doesn't have to change, as long as my finances don't get uncomfortable, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, that, you know that's, sort of, um, that's sort of Pharaoh's approach. Submit to God, but on your own terms. Did you see that in verse 28? Let me go back and read it. He says, so Pharaoh said, fine, I'll let you go to sacrifice to you, the Lord your God in the wilderness. Just don't go very far away. It's easy to miss. That's, I'll give in, but on my terms. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're a believer, but you're, you're clinging to this part of life saying, yeah, I'm all for the Lord as long as he doesn't do this. I'm all for the Lord as long as I call the shots. I'm all for the Lord as long as it goes the way I think it should go. That's a Pharaoh moment. That's a Pharaoh part of life. And Jesus taught us very simply that if you want to follow him, if you want to receive forgiveness and new life, if you want to have eternal life, it's actually pretty simple. You have to give up everything. Jesus doesn't call 95% disciples or 99% disciples. Jesus calls 100% disciples. It's very simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's very simple. Jesus says, you want to come follow me? That's fine. Leave everything. You want to come follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You want to come follow me? Oh, yeah, but I've got, you know, you remember the stories? I, I've got to go bury this person. No, no, don't do that. Well, yeah, let me, let me keep plowing a little bit, then I'll come follow you. Nope, not fit for the kingdom. Jesus says, you want to come to me? It's all or nothing. We don't come to God on our own terms and say, yes, God, I'll acknowledge your power. You are God and you control certain things, but I've still got my little kingdom over here. That's the Pharaoh approach. You may have heard the saying, God is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either Lord of everything, including me and all of my areas, or he's not Lord at all. Pharaoh wants to have it both. Sure, yeah, you're Yahweh, you can do things, but here in Egypt, I still run the show. Here in Exodus chapter 8, all throughout the Bible, all throughout history, even today, God is making himself known. We see his power in nature, we see his power in our own lives, his, and his power is demonstrated, to use words from here in Exodus, so that we may know he is Lord. Notice it's not so that you may know I'm around, uh, so that you may know I'm in the area, so that you may know I have my you know, hand in this jar and hand in this jar, so that you may know I'm behind the scenes. No, so that you may know I am what? Lord. 
so that you may know that I am in charge of everything. There is no place in your life, no place in your city, Pharaoh, where you can say, well, that, that's mine over here. No, Yahweh says, all of this is so that you may know that I am the Lord. And it's not just so that we then say, sort of pay lip service to him, like, okay, fine, you're Lord, you know, okay, whatever, and then sort of go live our lives as Pharaohs. That's not it either. You know, on Sunday morning, I acknowledge, and I'm like the Israelites, you know, praise the Lord, we're in Goshen, no flies here. And then we leave, and then during the week, we're acting like Pharaoh. That's not it either. He is Lord, and we must yield to him as such. Pharaoh here, he's starting to get it a little bit, recognize that Yahweh has more power than him, but it's the hard-heartedness that continues. He says, look, I'll, I'll pay lip service, but inside, man, I'm still sitting on my gold throne. I'm still calling the shots. And I wonder if that's you this morning. Are you living like Pharaoh? On the outside, maybe you're living like Pharaoh on the inside. Have you bowed your head to God as the Lord of creation? You know, Paul talks about in Philippians that there's coming a day where every knee will bow to the Lord. Don't wait for that day. Have you bowed your knee today? Have you bowed your head to God as the Lord of creation? And more importantly, I think, have you bowed your head to God as the Lord of your life? One thing to say, sure, God, he controls stuff out there. It's another to say, you know what, he controls me. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are mindful in a text like this that though thousands of years separated from us, the basic truths here are just as applicable today. We too often are little pharaohs in our actions, our thoughts, and our hearts. And so we pray, Father, that you would soften us. Let us be a people, a church, where people drive by and they say, that's Crosspoint. Man, those are some soft-hearted people. People who want to follow the Lord, even when it gets tough, even when it gets you know, stepping on toes, but they go with what the Lord says. May that be the case for our church. May that be the case for us as believers. I pray by your spirit that you would help us to identify those areas in our life, either sinful areas or maybe good areas, but we're just clinging to it. We're just holding on and saying, I'll follow you, but just not, not that way. Please, Lord, by your spirit, show us these things break our bonds on them, break our fingers from them, that we might fully embrace and serve you. You are Lord of creation. You are Lord of all, and we want to serve you in that way. Hear our praises and our prayers this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.